You're listening to Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast for players by players. And all about strategy, leveling up, and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass. We have a, a current two-time national champion. We've got someone holding two national trophies in their hands and two reigning titles. Did you ever think that would happen? So, you know what the hard part about this is? Is I don't know who to call the best player in Flesh and Blood anymore. Because there's Pablo Pintor, who's obviously been on ridiculous tear. There's Matt Fox, ridiculous tear. Um, there's Tarek Patel, two-time national champion, literally right now holding two titles. And there's Michael Hamilton, who's also on a ridiculous tear. These set, these players, and I'm sure they're missing one or two, so mind you, if I miss, I apologize. Uh, just really going off the dome here. Like, the accomplishments of these players are so unusual and so far beyond what I thought was going to happen in Flesh and Blood. We really don't have a definitive best player right now, and I think that the World Championships is going to be, like, the equalizer, right? The decider. Because I just can't believe that there's players holding two national... They're holding two titles player that won the PT, top eight of the PT. There's Michael Hamilton who wins everything he touches. I think he's gotten a PTI at every single tournament he's gone to. Um, and then Matt Fox going from national champion to pro tour champion as well. It's absolutely nuts. Um, and yeah, Tarek Patel, you know, he's joining us on this episode and obviously on a tear, got a new nickname out of this, which I think is a huge win for him. <laughs> the King of the North, which is a great nickname, by the way. Um, but yeah, Hayden, uh, it's absolutely unbelievable, to be honest. Yeah, well, it's true. We do have the, the newly minted King of the North, uh, or King in the North, depending if you're a Game of Thrones fan, I guess, joining us for episode 76 to discuss, obviously, his run at the Canadian National Championships. Um, a bit about the format, but particularly about Limited. We're going to discuss Limited, where uh, Tarek, I believe, had you know quite a bit of success um, in, in Limited to reach that top eight. So as all things can be discussed today. But, you know, first of all... Uh, any flesh and blood from you this week? I know you're still in Europe, still on holiday. Um, yeah, so flesh and blood is just Talisher online for me. It's actually been a bit less recently. Um, just been traveling a lot. I'm actually in Switzerland right now, which is cool. Switzerland is really nice. Like Zurich is freaking beautiful. It's really cheap but, as well. No, it's not very cheap. To be <laughs> honest, <I'm not. laughs> they lied to you. It is real. It is better than it has been in the past because the Swiss franc and the dollar are actually one to one right now, oh, which well. is pretty uncommon. Um, but still, man, everywhere you go, like if you get any amount of food, like you go to Burger King, it's gonna you're gonna walk away with a fifty dollar bill. It's crazy. Um, other than that, Zurich is absolutely beautiful. Like there's this kind of freshwater. I think it's freshwater. There's a lake, um, rock bottom, and overlooks like you know you're looking out from Zurich. You're seeing this lake, and then you see this like rolling kind of green hills, and then the Alps. It's just absolutely unbelievable. I'm actually going for a hike up in uh, Lucerne. Or around the area in Lucerne nice. tomorrow, which I'm really excited for. That'd be so amazing to see the Swiss, the Swiss nature. Give me some photos. Send me some photos. Yeah, excited. That, that's. I'm glad you're uh, having some good times trekking through Europe. Um, flesh and blood for me. You know what? Speaking of Telesha, I've uh, been streaming a bit of Telesha this week, trying to. Turns out, Brendan, I'm a bit of a boomer. Uh, I thought you were the boomer, but it turns out I might be. Uh, I just sort of struggle with <laughs> computer interfaces. It's not even the right. I mean, it's a, it's yeah. literally a web client. Um, so trying to get better at that, doing a bit of streaming. Uh, it's been it's been good. It's been nice. I plan to take like a couple of weeks of like downtime before Worlds testing kind of starts post nationals. But um, just been having fun trying out different decks. Obviously, a lot of decks coming out for these national championships, getting games in on Telesha and uh, doing sort of three or four streams a week uh, this week, last week and, and this week. So 
Um, shout out to everyone who's joined in the chat and uh, if you want to jump in for future streams uh, do I think I think Brendan is planning to do some streaming as well once he's back on solid ground in his home country yeah that was a it was definitely a half thought idea when I told you about it but I guess I'll commit that's committed now now, yeah (laughs) because I got nothing else to do Um, yeah so I think up and leading up to worlds by the way um, if you haven't seen I am going to be casting and commentating worlds I will not be playing uh, casting alongside Flake DeMarco yeah, Tan and Grace and Brian Gottlieb, which is, I'm really grateful to be sitting in the booth with those legends. But yeah, my, I think I'm just going to start streaming probably every day once I get back, which is around October 1st, and probably do, you know, five to six hours a day. We'll see if I can keep that up. I don't see why not. Um, I have uh, have had a, I got an opening in my schedule <laughs> leading up to Worlds. So I don't know. Looks fun, Hayden. So I want to join you on the on the streaming train there. Yeah, I think you're more experienced than I am, but I've definitely definitely had a good time. And honestly, it's it's like it's uh, the people who join in, so people who are jumping in chat, people who are actually viewing the stream, who who really make it. To be honest, it's been um, you know a really cool experience. People that I know, people that we know through Flesh and Blood through the channel, um, jumping in and and uh, just some good conversation. It's like it's like interactive time plus a chance to actually play some games. I'll tell you, what, I have not been playing particularly well. I've struggled with that. I think getting my head around. Uh, not making a million misplays while trying to concentrate, but um, I'm getting better. I'm getting better. So no, it's been it's been good playing some Telstra. Uh, news wise, Brendan, not too much on the news front. I mean, uh, my top of the news was that you're going to be casting worlds, which is obviously super exciting uh, for you. And now people know why you are making the big claim that you will not lose on stream at uh, worlds. But little do you know that I've actually concocted with one flake, Matt DeMarco, uh, for you and him to play a grudge match on stream before pt uh for the draft of pts uh, of the world so don't lose or you'll be quitting flesh and blood here's the thing um flake uh as much as he likes to think that he's a player he's he can stick to the competing stuff it's gonna be light work for me um no problem but yeah look forward to that and that is a very devious thing for you to do hayden because <laughs> I plan on never losing on stream again, if possible. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, <laughs> until me I start streaming Talishar, then it will literally probably be every game because I, I know what you mean. It's really tough. <laughs> it's it really is, tough yeah. to stream and play. It's surprisingly. I said it's hard to play above like 50% of like your normal capacity. So, but, but it's, it's, it's like you can still talk through lines, I think. And I, I often am like missing, you know, I see my mistakes. And it's like, okay, this is the line that should have been taken. I think it's a good, good conversation and um, also really enjoyable getting, getting uh, everyone chat involved. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I don't know if you're aware, but you have a better win record on stream at, um, premier events than I do. Well, actually, is that true? I have a 50% win rate. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> no, I have worse. <laughs> I'm one for two. I've won, um, I think I'm one, one for four. For th- I think it's one, it's either, I think it might be one for three, but it could be one for four. I think four. you're one for four. <laughs> That's pretty I think bad. I know that. I think I watched all of them as well. So, break it to well, I'm gonna win one one more to uh, equalize with you, I guess. Two yeah, and wins. Well, that'll make you uh, less than fifty fifty math because you know there'll be a fifth game. But that's all right, Brendan. Anyway, uh, other news <laughs> this week. Uh, just a big congratulations to all the national champions uh, that have been crowned over the week. Of course, we've got Tarek about to join us on the show soon. Uh, Roger, sorry, I forgot your last name in the UK. I did watch them that stream with Fi. Fi really turning it up for. Uh, the UK Nationals, three copies into top eight. And I think they were all on the same list or uh, near there. So uh, awesome to see other champions uh, around the world. I think uh, we, I know uh, Pablo Pintor lost in the the finals of his 
um, in the Spanish national championships. I think the Portuguese, the Hungarian national championships happened. So uh, shout out to all, all those players. But some awesome to see some great coverage. I think there was four different streams of nationals over the weekend. So lots to watch and uh, lots to watch. Go and watch back if you're interested in what's happening in this format right now. Brendan, it's, it's changing quite dramatically, right? Like week to week, we're seeing some shifts in this format. It's going to be interesting to see what happens in the yeah. last week because obviously we've got kind of, I guess what people would say is the, the pinnacle or the, at least the biggest event, the, the most sort of, I guess, uh, looked forward to just because of the calling as well, but US Nationals and uh, New Zealand Nationals this weekend. Yeah, I think that US Nationals, or at least it's like these final Nationals, will really set the stage for any potential changes leading into pro, uh, into the World Championships as well. Um, you know, looking at maybe any kickups or I really doubt there will be like some sort of hero suspension or banning, but I would not be surprised to see, you know, particularly some some card in particular that is heavily overperforming potentially in the meta, maybe get adjusted moving into that world championships to switch something up. At the same time, my personal experience with the game so far is that the game has been very balanced um, and very healthy, and we've seen the the meta shift accordingly, right? Like I, I, I said on Twitter that Reinar looked okay into some of these decks and I got flamed. I got flamed by the Reinar master sitting in I others, but looks like Reiner Reiner has been performing. Reiner has been performing, but we've seen, we've seen the meta shift, right? We saw a lot of German, yeah, a lot of aggro decks drop old out. Him takes, the aggro decks have dropped out and we've seen old him really solidify what looks to be its place in the meta. Ultim being certain, potentially that premier defensive deck um, and seeing things like dash come back as well. So very exciting meta. Um, and I think that there will actually be a lot of seen, you know, this past weekend, uh, at us nationals, but even more at the world championships, assuming no changes. Yeah, I agree. Um, so yeah, congrats to all those. And yeah, let's see how the meta you know, sort of shapes up for the end of this. Um, otherwise the news, uh, we've had some more dynasty sort of preview spoilers, which has been great to see. We've been introduced to a new hero in the form of a new guardian, uh, which looks pretty set for, uh, do you know, do you have the name of Brendan actually? I've forgotten what, what this hero is called. Yeah. I've had a brief uh, I think look. it's Yoji. Yeah. Yeah. Yoji, the guardian, um, pay three effectively redirect the damage or pay. Yeah. Pay three effectively redirect one damage or something like that. That would be dealt like with like another a- hero. So it, 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 mm-hmm. it's a, it's a multiplayer PVE when that comes card, right? Which is um, interesting, but you can talk about it if you want, but you want to talk about the real source. The real sauce is in the new wizard card. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that card... When you was a hero, you card, were trying to tell me it was a new wizard hero. No, no. If you go look at that chat, by the way, you kept saying that. I did say wizard card. Oh, okay. Uh, anyway, the new wizard card, uh, what is it? Something in Aether. Do you have the name? Blessing of Aether. Blessing of Bless- Aether. Blessing of Aether. Yeah. Um, it effectively lets... It, it, it's a pump in your main phase, right? So um, I believe it destroys the start of turn, and the red one gives you plus three, the blue one gives you plus one. Um, we don't really have to dive too deep into what this card exactly means, but, uh, you know, kind of quick view is that I think that we are unlocking potentially a new archetype of wizard that plays more in the main phase and gets beneficial reasons to do that, right? Because currently wizard does play a lot in this main phase, but it's mostly because of just the ephemeral sense of tempo, right? Which is where you take cards on your, by playing in your main phase, you take cards on your turn. They play with that hand with the stripped cards. And now you can strip again on their turn and you play with significant card advantage during that time, but get on something like an Aether flare. And then you snap back on top of that looks pretty nice. I'm not going to lie. So potentially unlocking a new wizard archetype, which I'm really excited for. Um, I think that this is uh, a fresh kind of design coming into wizard. So yeah, I mean, it's spicy, and I'm, I, I understand why they sort of revealed this early. It's cool. Yeah, like, it allows you to play six-card hands, effectively, before you even start doing any sort of, like, you know, other shenan- wizard shenanigans, which is uh, 
Which is very cool. So, um, yeah, looking forward to what we're going to see more from Dynasty. Like, if, if that's the kind of lead into what Dynasty is going to look like, I, I like that. Like you just said, uh, that's kind of the words I kind of had as well. Is you know, it, it adds a dimension to a hero or a class that we we haven't necessarily seen so far. Something a little bit different. You know, we've seen that kind of effect in Guardians before with things like emerging power, etc. That kind of delayed gratification of the power, towering titan, etc. Now we get that potential in um, something like Wizards. So, yeah, excited. I mean, you know, we could list. All the heroes we'd love to see some differentiating sort of uh, cards and design space to be explored but um, i really hope that that goes that way more of the crucible route rather than the uh, everfest route which sort of you know maybe doubled down on some existing space and uh you know but yoji multiplayer i don't know we'll have to wait and see yeah i think that the my first impression of the young heroes that the young heroes of um of dynasty are more of a, a fun thing um not to be taken too seriously I could be wrong, but I personally don't take the Emperor very seriously, and Yoji's obviously designed for a space in the game that is either too calm. whether it's UPF or yeah, too calm, as in the PVE, something yeah. like that. I mean, and that's exciting. I think it's really exciting, and we've talked about this at ad nauseum that uh, you know PVE uh, UPF maybe not in its current iteration, but whatever that could look like, multiplayer forms in the in the in the future is kind of going to be the um, bedrock of what Flesh and Blood continues to grow upon, not just the competitive space. So, um, yeah, really exciting to see. I think that's basically all I wanted to shout out this week. Um, just want to give a big call out, of course, as always, to our amazing patrons. Um, and we've got a few deck techs that have gone up. So we actually did a, a, a deck tech with Michael Hamilton uh, that me and him uh, recorded last week and has gone up. And you can find uh, Michael did an amazing write-up for that uh, deck. It's very similar to what he played in the PT, adjusted for the current meta um will we see him run it this weekend will you know will he be on something else uh let's let's wait and see you know i'm always back michael to to pick up a guardian um but yeah great great list and uh he's done like a, a six page like sideboard guide that's up on our patreon as well and uh we also of course did one if you haven't seen it already for our uh deck that we played at the pt and uh tweaked that i took into my national championships and finished in 14th place so uh, that is also up there for you as well you can go check those out and we've, we're going to have some more coming in the in the coming weeks and the lead into the world championship with the impartial brendan patrick who is now in the booth as it were in the booth cheering you guys on from the booth but uh yeah i'm really excited really excited to cast and i hope that you know during the world for the world championships i think it's really important for the casting team to build the narrative of flesh and blood in terms of the players you know the teams and the identities coming into this because this is the culmination of the pro tour and the pro circuit and pretty much all flesh and blood uh beforehand right all of competitive play leads into the final world championship to crown the unquote best player in the world so there's a lot going into that and we've seen a lot of rising stars recently uh, I'm really excited, excited to see how they perform, and maybe some some burning ones, some fading ones. Uh, if you if you look over <laughs> my direction, potentially. But no, I'm coming back for worlds. You know, we're taking it back. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> definitely. We got this. We got this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Brendan is determined to not lose a single game at the World Championship, uh, except for the team draft that we will be doing on Sunday at some point, and I will be uh, getting him to grab his new found co-workers and uh, me, Sasha, and our third person of desire will be whipping your butt. Anyway, Brendan, uh, no Commander Cookout this this week. Uh, actually, we, we, we're kind of light on questions, so if you do have questions you do want to get in for the Commander Cookout, we, we requisited a lot of questions uh, two weeks ago for the amazing mailbag that we did because we, we had a lot of great questions and we wanted to get through those. Uh, but now we're pretty light on, so if you do have a question you want to get in, you can email us to us at arsenalpassfab at gmail.com, drop them down below in the YouTube comments, or you can tweet at us, uh, DM us, whatever you want to do on Twitter. With that said, Brendan, I think it's time to bring in the man who wears the crown upon his head, Derek Patel. 
Let's do it. On episode 76 of Arsenal Pass, we are proud to have on the show Tarek Patel, now dubbed the uh, King of the North, and currently Canadian and US national champion for about 48 hours, I think. Um, at, well, at least, at least. So, Tarek, congratulations on your uh, recent win over the weekend and uh, welcome on to Arsenal Pass again. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, how's uh, your travels going, Brendan? Hayden, how's Australia? Yeah, so I'm in Switzerland right now, uh, which is, it's it's nice, it's beautiful in Zurich, but it's also extremely expensive. <laughs> that's what that's what you get. Um, and I'm here, I'm in Europe until oct- around October 1st, heading to Austria after this, and then back to Paris for a few days before we fly out. Um, overall, good six-week trip in Europe is pretty long, but, you know, I like it, and I'm excited to get back and actually start getting stuff done. Hayden and I talked about kind of before this in the intro that I'd probably start streaming on Hayden as well. Hayden, what about you? I know you're happy to uh, lay in your own bed. Right? Oh, certainly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you have, sound like you're having a torrid time, Brendan. Um, yeah, Australia's fine. Uh, Sunday, warm up a bit. Summer's on its way. So, although it's meant to be a very another very wet summer, so I'll cover what nice <laughs> weather we have. But no, no, all things going well. Thanks, Eric. For sure. All right, so... Let's head into it, Tarek. Obviously, winning two two national championships back to back, holding two titles at the same time—pretty ridiculous. Uh, we were talking about this before you hopped on, but there's been some incredible narratives that are being weaved around some truly exceptional players in flesh and blood that are achieving things I thought might actually never be possible. We have people winning the Pro Tour top eighty yet. We have you know people winning multiple callings back to back to back. Now you're holding two national national titles at the same time. It's absolutely incredible. And I think that this this question of the best player in the world right now is really up for debate, and we have the world championships to kind of decide that. But the first question I want to ask you is like, just coming off the pro tour, um, what did your preparation look like heading into this event? Because you know you had to fly back. The meta changed with Prism Living Legend. Um, yeah, what did that look like for you? Uh, so for my preparation from nationals, um, we had a rough idea. I mean, Australian nationals was so close uh, to when the pro tour ended because only like what you guys had like a week and a half or two weeks from you know flying home to testing or whatever so uh hayden um you know i work with nick butcher so i was helping him test uh heading into australian nationals and we didn't have a ton of time and uh nick was already very comfortable playing oldham i think he took it to singapore um so you know it's good to start where you have a basis so we really understood the matchup already for the open metagame and it's worst matchup gone being prism. Um, it was really kind of the place to start. So Nick, you know, and I live on completely different time zones. So thankfully because of Talishar or previously known as fab online, uh, we were able to get a bunch of games in. Um, I was able to test uh, a little bit of Oldham for him. He was able to test a little bit of like other decks, but we eventually arrived on it. And, you know, the rest is history in Australia. Nick ended up winning actually. So that was fantastic. And then from there, uh, just continued to kind of iterate on the deck and, and go forward. Uh, Dromai was in the conversation for a little bit, but it was mostly Dromai and Oldham right till the last minute. Mm-hmm. Y'all have to be pretty proud putting up two national champions uh, quickly after that Pro Tour. A, b- a big turnaround for Team Dragon Shield there, eh? Yeah. Um, it, it was tough, like going from Pro Tour 1, Pro Tour 2, where none of us top aided, especially. Um, you know, given who we are, we're we have high expectations of ourselves, and neither of the events went you know super super well. So it's nice to get a win under our belts. I know all of us are still kind of looking at Worlds as you know the next next big big thing uh, that we're really all preparing for. 
So although the national win is great, I can't speak for Nick, obviously, but for myself, uh, Worlds is going to be the real, uh, you know, cherry on the Sunday. So I'll be practicing hard for that. And, you know, I'm sure Nick and Matt will be doing the same. So having two major tournaments like the Pro Tour National Champions back to back, what were some of the learnings you took away from the Pro Tour? Because your national championship was also dual format, being Uprising Draft and Classic Constructed. Did you learn anything at the Pro Tour that helped you uh, be successful in nationals? Um, well, I learned that Dash was a lot more of a viable deck than I thought it was a couple weeks prior. And I don't know if that was a good or bad thing, because I think it wasted some of my time in testing. Uh, we continue to work on Dash and try and make it you know, better and better. I put a, uh, a video out on LSS recently, actually, with my updated Dash deck. I was playing Reinforce the Line. So we even went a step further to try and shore up uh, certain matchups, like the older matchup, and um, couldn't quite get it to a spot that I wanted. Um, but, you know, after after Pro Tour, um, you know, Uprising Draft is, is kind of just a difficult format overall. And I think our, our number one goal is, you know, just don't royally mess it up, which I almost did on, on you know, in our nationals. But I think that was the biggest uh, takeaway I had from the Pro Tour that I could, uh, you know, use heading into national season. Can I ask, Eric, you said, you know, Dash, you found out a viable deck a couple of weeks before the Pro Tour. Could you share with us what you were, what you were probably considering as your number one pick heading into the Pro Tour, if it, you know, if it didn't end up being Dash prior to that sort of knowledge falling in your lap? Yeah, so starting maybe even like two, three weeks before, uh, we were really testing a lot of Fi and a lot of Viscerai, because at the time, Fi was a quite a good deck. You know, it could beat Oldham Fatigue, like the pure Fatigue Oldhams that we were seeing at the time. Um, and it had a really good matchup into Briar because of Mask of Momentum, right? The fact that Phi always threatened a quote-unquote snatch draw during its uh, turn cycle meant that Briar either had to take an extra card worth of damage per turn, or it had to block, which Briar does very suboptimally. So we're often finding that if the two premier aggro decks were Briar and Phi, it was doing really, really well. Um, and then even Viscerai had a good matchup into Briar. So Fi and Viscerai were like the two decks that we were considering. Briar was kind of on the back burner. Then all these events started coming out. The Battleheart in Singapore. And we saw Fi kind of drop off a map. Briar kind of picked back up. So kind of the week before the Pro Tour week and a half, uh, I was already in Europe. So I had Viscerai, Briar on me. Um, we were kind of, I was at least testing, you know, a lot of Briar, a lot of Runeblade. Um, Channel Mount Heroic, just easily the best card in the game in a vacuum. So uh, I'm a big believer of, you know, don't make it difficult on yourself. You know, play the best deck. Um, luckily, though, and this is kind of serendipitous, too. Uh, not only was the Australians and New Zealanders that I was testing with, uh, that being Matt and Nick, were working on uh, Dash. But at the same time, the Canadians that, uh, you know, I live near uh, also came to the same conclusion that Dash was really good. So I had two separate groups that weren't talking to each other, both coming to the same conclusions. And I'm like, OK, there's probably something here. Um, and we ended up, you know, pretty close to our Dash list that we uh, ended up on at the Pro Tour. And then we all met in Lil and kind of finalized the list from there. And that's how we kind of ended up on Dash. Awesome story to hear as well, like how that kind of comes to fruition. Because, you know, <clears throat> if watching the stream at home, watching the PT, they just see Tarek Patel playing Dash, Matt Rogers playing Dash. They don't see the, the journey of, of how this deck comes to be. So uh, it's great to hear as well. What was, um, what was your overall experience at Canadian Nationals like? How were your opponents? How was the, you know, the general skill level of players? Were you surprised? Was it what you expected? Just talk a little bit about it. 
Yeah, Canada's a very interesting place. Uh, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's specifically the GTA or British Columbia, but even like my years of playing, you know, Yu-Gi-Oh TCG or um, Magic the Gathering, like just to talk about Yu-Gi-Oh for a second, there are a couple players nearby. And if you've played the game, you might have heard of them like Lazaro Bolito, Dale Bolito, Matt Petal. Like these were like titans in the game of like early Yu-Gi-Oh. And they all live within like literally 20 minute drive of each other. There's probably more that I'm forgetting of. But Toronto has always had like this extremely dense uh, concentration of just high skilled players. So, and in Magic, it's the same thing. You know, when when you go back and look at my local game store from you know college years, you can actually find like multiple GP champions, GP top A's, SCG namestays, like they were all just playing at like my local game store. So, if Flesh and Blood has just continued this trend, like there is just so many good players you may have heard of or you may not have and every round was like an absolute slugfest um like all the way from draft uh to class constructed um mike the uh semi-finalist uh he works with dante i'm sure you guys have uh crossed paths with him before uh he's a fantastic wizard player and he he pulled like the wizard d because i think d played like nine it was a 12 rounds of classic constructed six rounds of classic constructed six rounds of draft all five. And I think Mike did the opposite where he played 12 rounds of, of just Icelander. So, you know, he was just a, a fantastic wizard player. And I got the privilege of watching him uh, pilot the deck all weekend. Uh, I can't uh, go with this podcast without mentioning how amazing Yuki is. I played against her twice in the tournament. Actually um, once was, a very uh, watered-down limited uh, draft where both of our decks were extremely subpar, and we were like, I was casting like Yellow Rake the Embers, attacking for one and passing, and then she would do the exact same, and it was quite an entertaining match, but uh, she is just a, a phenomenal player, and I'm lucky to have won the right match versus her instead of the, you know, the Swiss ones. Yeah, just the scale here is absolutely off the charts, and just fantastic people, super nice. I love everything about it. Yeah. I'm going to leave this question until later because it's a bit spicy, but I know everybody's going to be, it's just on the tip of their tongue. And I think you know what I'm going to ask. Is that uh, America or Canada is better? <laughs> I plead the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> You're in Canada, dude. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely Canada. <laughs> oh. Oof, that's, uh, that, that, that hurts, but all good. So what are your thoughts on the flesh and blood meta, um, the class constructed meta post prism? Are you enjoying it? Uh, do you think that it is uh, a control meta? Have we, are the days of the rune blade sort of fading here? Uh, I think it's to be determined and that rests a lot on Dromai. So I got to a spot with Dromai that, you know, I was happy with, but I hadn't figured out everything, right? It was much easier to take a deck like Oldham where I'd played hundreds of matches before and kind of just tweak the little areas that like I'm uncertain about or add a couple cards here and there. But I think that will largely depend on Dromai. So I think if Dromai, you know, ends up being what Prism was for Oldham, uh, basically a very good Oldham matchup, we will see the return of Runeblade again soon. Uh, we will see Dromai, you know, kind of take over the metagame and then we'll see kind of the aggro decks kind of pop back up. Now, with that being said, you know, mid-range metagame you know i don't know how to establish that really because you know to me is is a game ending in four turns is that what you really consider an aggro format or because it kind of still can happen even now with like oldham you know i've had aggro oldham games that kind of end pretty quickly and games that go like 30 40 turns 
Um, but you know, five is a very viable deck right now. Derude went, I think, undefeated or X one in the class constructed portion. Um, so there's still that floating around. You know, Icelander can change. Uh, it's a very winnable matchup for Icelander into you know Oldham and some of the mid range decks in the format. So. I don't even think it, it might rest on Droma. I think there's a lot of decks that can kind of uh, take over the metagame and we can get see a, a shift pretty recently. I think what mm-hmm. points you towards uh, being in somewhat of a mid-range metagame is Reinhardt's putting up results. I think, uh, <laughs> you, <laughs> I think you have to be in some sort of a mid-range metagame for that to, to be uh, functional, to be honest. Oh my gosh. I was thinking of you... All throughout that top end, I'm like, God, I should have freaking talked to Dale or Hayden because I have no idea what Reiner does. You know, funny story. I When I saw there was two Reinars in the top eight, the first thing I did was, are they on my side of the bracket? Then I was like, oh, thank God. Okay. Um, I, I actually went and I called both Matt and Nick because I'm not a boomer in Flesh and Blood. That, that hero has not been very prevalent since I started playing. And Nick, thankfully, picks up the phone because he's a psycho running at 5 a.m., so he's like on the treadmill at 5 a.m. And, I, and he gets my phone call. He's like, I got you. Here's exactly what you do and how you do it. And uh, if it wasn't for Nick's advice, I would have completely miscyborded. And, you know, even I, like thank you to you too, Hayden, because I guess you and Nick have played before. So he's like, I played Hayden. I got you. And I was like, all right, sick. <laughs> Definitely a, a familiar matchup. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and uh, even if you're a boomer in Flesh and Blood, I mean, Rhino's almost never been a super relevant deck. Crucible of War, there's definitely an argument, right? But even back then, a lot of people were were definitely fading Reinar. So it's <laughs> true. Uh, it's it's something. So uh, just just your initial reaction. Are you having more fun in this uh, in this classic meta? I am actually, and you know, it's not to say that I wasn't having fun before, but I really like grindy games with like super tiny edges like what's weird is i love the old amir and people like hate it and i just absolutely love it because it's like super tiny micro decisions in the old amir come down to like the very end of the game and they really start snowballing advantage so that like one damage that my opponent took you know 10 turns 20 turns prior that they didn't really think too much of is now coming back to bite them that one extra card that they blocked or didn't block with coming back to bite them so I've really liked it. Um, I can't speak for everybody, but I, I've had you know a blast. Yeah. So talk to me about Uprising Drafts. What was like your general outlook and strategy during the Pro Tour? And did that change for Nationals at all? Yeah. Um, so let me first say that I think there's a lot that can go wrong in Uprising Draft, as seen by you know my second draft results in... Uh, nationals i went ended up going one two with kind of a train wreck of a draft deck i think the best thing you can do is try and be either one of two icelanders and one of two dromais and that's what i kind of try and do and i i know that kind of flies in the face of a lot of people you know i think folks uh likes to give me crap because he's like you should just force fire every time what are you doing um but my my biggest issue with Fi is a, I don't know of any discernible edge in the mirror. Like maybe you guys can elaborate on that if you Dial. know. But yeah, yeah. It's, so yeah, and I, I've had that where I drafted like the best five deck like I could. Like I literally like if you gave me uprising, all the cards in uprising, and I were to make a five deck, I probably would have made this draft deck right. 
And then I went and I played in the top eight. I think it was like an RTN of, of somebody else who had a very, you know, average. It was still playable, but, you know, a very average five deck. I lost the die roll and I was just like, it was just it. Like there was nothing I'd done. Like I even boarded in my two sigils trying to, you know, start with them to kind of steal back the play or the draw, I guess, or going second. But it wasn't enough. Um, so I, I couldn't figure that out. And I also think a good Icelander deck beats a, a you know, a good five deck. So I have a bad matchup, bad matchup into into Icelander, excuse me. And then I have, you know, kind of a coin flip in the mirror. That's probably the most prevalently drafted heroes. So I, I like to tend to avoid Fi. I'll draft it if it's open. But uh, I like to kind of either create a lane where I'm one of two Dromai or Icelander. I think that for me is, is my go to. Mm -hmm. Did that strategy, was there any evolution in that strategy from the, the pro tour to nationals or was that pretty much the, um, like the, your plan going into, uh, the pro tour and then sort of re reinforce those ideas and you took that same, that same strategy to national. Yeah. Yeah. We, I didn't get a ton of time to redraft after nationals, cause especially with the newer classic constructed format, I spent most of my energy on that and there's only been two weeks or so. So we kind of took the same ideas, you know, I went 2-1 and 2-1 at the Battle Harden, but both my decks were quite insane. So it was working pretty well, um, and I, I just didn't want to mess with something that was, you know, working. So we kind of took that into uh, Nationals. It worked very well in my first draft, ended up with a 3-0. Um, <clears throat> what I didn't realize, though, in the second draft was... I was in a pod of people that really like specific heroes and I just wasn't privy mm -hmm. to it because I, I didn't really know the local uh, metagame. But uh, talking to my friend Joel after, he was like, oh yeah, I wish we talked beforehand because this guy never drafts this hero or only drafts this hero. D-Root only drafts Fi. Mike really has a high, high preference for Wizard. So like, if I knew certain things about it, I probably would have drafted a little bit more. But I think it also speaks to the format where you shouldn't have to know those kind of things to, you know, have a good draft. And it was unfortunate because in the in the uh, in the actual draft itself, there was a pack. I think it was pick four, pack one. Um, I had a Spellfire cloak, uh, or it might have been my pick five. So I knew that the four people to my right were not Icelander. And there was an interesting situation where I had to decide at that point, do I switch to Icelander or do I stay with my train wreck? Well, at the time, it was a pretty good draw my deck, four picks in. Um, do I continue on this pack, down this path? And, and, and here's the problem with, not problem, but here's what I have found with Uprising, I guess. If you are one of three Icelander or one of three Dromai, it is a night and day difference than if you are one of two. And my biggest worry is that Mike was to my left, and I know he's probably going to be the other Icelander. He was the only Icelander, it turns out, at the end of the draft. But if the person, you know, three seats down from me is also Icelander, because I've sent massive Icelander singles to my left, and I am now the third Icelander that has pivoted on pick five, then I just could completely wrecked, right? Because um, there's usually not going to be enough cards in the in the rest of the packs to to you know, have three Icelanders, especially one that's now five picks down, five premium picks down at that. So I had to make the choice. Do I stay in my lane or do I pivot now uh, and risk being the third Icelander? And I decided to stay in my lane. And it turns out that was a really, really bad choice. Mike was the only Icelander and had a blitz deck. So <laughs> it, it, it feels like 
you honestly just flip a coin. Sometimes those situations, like I have a real love-hate yeah. relationship with Uprising Draft where, you know, those situations, sometimes it goes right. You know, you 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 slam that Spellfire Cloak and you end up as one of two, you know, uh, wizards to the right of the other wizard for a premium pack three, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, other times that that happens, right? Or you, you end up being, I've even had a, situa- a very similar situation to that where the uh, an equipment already taken previously was another Spellfire Cloak. You know, and the wizard was actually to my right. You know, they didn't see the other. There's there's so many situations where you know, are they going to take two spellfire cloak? No, they're going to they're going to ship one, right? And it's going to put a wizard to the left. But it's um it's a really interesting format. It's it's really I like hearing what you said about sticking to what you knew because you can you can go deep in this format as you can with all draft formats. I think so far in this game, you can come up with these plans and ways you want to draft, and then you can go into a draft, and that draft might be a practice draft. That draft might be draft one pod one at the pt it could be you know pod one at nationals and it's not always going to come off for you right but i think if you have this backing to you to just go and throw that out the window and say i'm changing my entire draft strategy i don't think is uh i don't think it's viable i you know i i had a similar experience and i think me and you sat down from each other at the pt after our second draft and neither of us felt particularly good about our our decks we had drafted um at, at pt too and you know i think i thought long and hard on the plane on my way back to nationals about that draft in particular and made you know small tweaks and changes to what i wanted to do in the draft but i think wholesale changes when there's so much information so much backing you're just doing yourself a disservice uh, unless unless you've been proven completely wrong but i just don't think that's the case yeah so hopefully i'm not hopefully i'm not spoiling any any trade secrets here but i have to i have to point out from my outside my outside perspective it seems like team dragon shield is a bit partial to dramai um, is there anything behind that? Uh, because it seems like mo- I've mostly just seen Matt's drafts and your drafts. I haven't seen much of Nick's. It seems like you all tend to tend to lean into the Jermai deck and tend to be successful with it as well. Like you said, you even drafted a Jermai deck, uh, you know, in nationals that was a bit of a train wreck. So it seems like you were p- pivoting into the deck quite early, right? You said you had a good deck in the first four picks. Um, is there anything about Jermai that you think that you understand that other people don't? Um, I think it tends to be the least drafted hero in the set, which is why we kind of gravitate to it. Like I said at the start, we'd like to be one of two. Um, in that draft specifically, I was sitting next to Mike C, who primarily drafts, uh, you know, Wizard, and I was sitting next to Drood, who primarily drafts Fi. So, me starting Dromai was purely because I knew what the people around me were drafting. In my first draft, I actually started, you know, generic popper, Icelander, Icelander, and then I went Dromai because I saw uh Red Ember, you know, Senpais uh, come around, Senpais, uh, and Dune Breakers. Um as far as do we know something about Dromai that really makes us like it? I think the biggest thing is dragons aren't as good as people think. Mm-hmm. Um and but for me, I actually, this is a me thing. Matt, I think, is a bigger fan of Dromai, but me drafting Dromai actually always makes me nervous. I'm actually more of an Icelander person. I think it just, it's funny that it kind of happened to be that I ended up drafting Dromai for most of my drafts um, just because it was open. But for me, it makes me really nervous because, like I just mentioned, dragons aren't as good as people think. So a lot of the times, I'm more worried about taking a Dune Breaker, taking, um, you know, uh, 
an Ember Moth Centipi or something, <clears throat> and then shipping a very medium dragon, and then having somebody windmill slam it because they're like, this is a single. So that actually makes me nervous. And for, for that reason, my actual draft preference order, if you ask me, would be Icelander, Dromai, and then Phi. Um, but it just ha- happens to be that people like Icelander and people very much dislike Dromai. So I end up getting Dromai most of my draft. That's that's really yeah. interesting because I've seen Nick's drafts. I watched, you know, we show, he, we were in different pods at, at nationals and also Singapore, and you know, he showed me his his decks he drafted. And I know Nick is very partial to to Icelander, um, and a big yeah. part of that is actually a lot of leading up to it. Uh, you know, doing local drafts, got to draft alongside Nick, and uh, our local meta in particular in Australia favors Dramai heavier than Icelander, which is different to what I think we saw in Europe and and in North America. I think it's similar. Um, so you know, I felt the same. Like I. I drafted Icelander for my first draft and I probably should have drafted Icelander for my second draft to be honest as well. And it's um it's just it's just the meta of the draft, right? And I think just exemplifies your point of of trying to to be open to those potentially two stronger if you're on the one of the two uh, heroes if, if you can be and then trying to read based on the unfortunately, based on the players in your pod and uh, the knowledge you have of the meta. Yeah. There's no secret recipe that we found really. We just I think our greatest strength was identifying, at least with competent, you know, pod people that, you know, if we see these cards at certain picks, this is probably more open than that. Uh, like a good one that we came with up with uh, that I can share is like, like uh, rares being gone early, right? That's usually a signal that Dromai is being picked um, because, you know, in the other classes and generic wise, there's not really a ton of rares. Um, just little things like that were what I think put us, at least draft wise, you know, I think we did a really good job identifying and making the best out of a, a very medium situation, but I don't think we came up with anything like super, super special. I think there was just really, really tiny things that, you know, still to this day in nationals ended up paying off. And what really punishes me is my my own head like oh am i going to be the third icelander should i have pivoted you know those kind of things that mess everybody up what do you think is uh your biggest learning in uprising drafts from release to today uh you don't need to play fi i remember um sitting down in vegas for the world premiere and being like oh it's like briar all over again um and i'm like oh is there like an oldham deck in this format now that we can like pivot to that but i i used to think it was like fire nothing and the more i played uprising i realized like every hero so i think i've, I've been public on this before but i think uprising in a vacuum is a very well-designed set i think every hero can beat every other hero right we, we didn't really always have that in in tales of aria you know lexi had a very tough time beating even a medium oldham um so i think in that aspect it was very well designed and i actually think if there was like one more class card per or hero card per pack. I think this would have been a really good, a really, really good draft set. Hayden, do you want to chime in there? Do you also have a, uh, a learning that you may be a big one that you picked up from release? <sighs> I was say, so, so many learnings, uh, <laughs> but biggest one probably for me is that um, the format boils down to a lot more simple factors than I think I thought it did at the start. I think a lot of cards that, uh, you know, for want of a bit of term, cute and have some really like on the surface strong interactions uh sigil permafrost is a card that comes to my mind brendan uh are not 
really the the cornerstone of this format and what is the cornerstone of this format is just good numbers um i think you see that mm. with the fire decks that have success they just have good numbers with icelander i think that was a learning for me as well was you know uh blue cards are great yeah but they're not the cards that are going to actually uh win you the game so i think there's some learnings like that even you know i, I look at a, a card like um scar for scar which i think has like you know has reasonable numbers but you know in class cards you have cards that function as a, a much more important role of your deck that have kind of a bigger impact on the game so um yeah that's probably been my biggest learning i think mm-hmm. how do you all feel about uh this this the dice roll what about yours brendan is it as do i don't know if i have one <laughs> i would be a bit contrarian to say that i think that like uh i think Phi is actually like a super uh, a pretty legit deck and you can get away with get away with a lot there like um it seems like a, a safe fallback in the sense of you know it's not ideal to 2-1 but if you are really just trying to get through the uprising draft portion I think that this idea of not necessarily forcing Phi, but really favoring Phi can be can be pretty safe for that. I've had really good Icelander decks that I felt like just got run over by Phi when I was sitting on the wrong side of the dice roll, you know, leaked a ton of damage, um, and then just got ran over maybe two turns in a row, and then I couldn't really respond at instant speed, and it was a bit of, a bit tough. Um, I do like Jeremiah a lot. Yeah, I mean, we've seen players have a ton of success with, uh, you know, f- really really just forcing fi right um well i don't think that's the end all bl i think that fi is like a super legit deck and that even if there's you know three and potentially i mean four is not ideal but if there's three at the table it might be a deck that i mean you might you could you could want to be in especially if that's your play style right it's definitely the easiest deck to play um and i think it's potentially a safe pick for some people that don't have time to get enough reps in uh, in uprising draft leading into something like like the pro tour or maybe even the world championships so that's kind of my takeaway which i know is pretty different from y'all's but um yeah uh, i think that but that's good though that's good that there's a disagreement, right and there's a there's a disagreement like not necessarily disagreements but we we acknowledge that there's a significant and re- and reasonable power level to every single hero in the set. I think what Brendan said is also very important, you know, and it's something that I'm still learning myself. You asked me what my biggest takeaway from was, and I think after I had the train wreck draft, I had the learning that Brendan just the the knowledge nugget that Brendan just dropped on everybody uh, kind of come to me where my mindset should have been, you know, I just don't want a train wreck draft. Why? am I so close to Fi? And that's something that I'm working on. You know, I had a bias before that I want to be one of two heroes. And I think a learning point for me was I need to adopt more of a Brendan Patrick mentality and be a little bit more open to drafting a Fi, especially if I'm comfortable with my CC deck and my only goal is don't don't draft a train wreck. That, so. that, that's actually really similar to like kind of what I, my, my thinking on the plane back to nationals was I, at the PT, I was like, I, I was like happy if I opened even like a reasonable class card in either Iceland or a fire, I was going to take it over a Red M or Cinepie or, uh, you know, a Necre or whatever. Like I was like just happy to pass those. And my biggest learning was like, uh, at some point I'm going to need to be like, the best deck at the table is going to be being one of the two Dramai. And I need to like be able to position myself to be in that. And uh, I'm going to have more chance to be in a one of three Icelander if I'm never going to be one of the two, you know, like just, just fundamentally. So very similar thing of like, just trying to be a bit more open and and uh, play to the strengths of the format, I think. I really agree with the uh, sort of the ideology with Jermai that dragons are not as good as people think. Um, I think the centipies are centipies are just like one of the most powerful things you can be doing in Uprising Draft. 
I hate sharing center pies with like if there's other players at the table that are valuing those cards as highly as I am. Um, you're going to get significantly less of them, right? Because they're going to draft the centipies over the dragons. When players are drafting dragons over centipies, you can get just a nasty... Yeah. I generally don't like sharing centipies. I freaking hate sharing it with two other players. It's like abysmal, uh, but that's just the third Jermai problem. Uh, but yeah, the, the centipie cards, just they're so strong, especially the Ember Moth centipie. There's almost nothing better than blocking with potentially three cards on your opponent's turn and then coming with a nice two for two. Something like that. It's just so powerful. That's that's the classic though. You draw off the center pies and then you you pass the dragon. Then the person ends up being the third Dramai. It doesn't doesn't pay attention to the missing uh, Dramai common. Just goes, oh look, dragon. <laughs> Three Dramai at the table. It's so it's so interesting too because in in uprising draft, I feel like uh, Phi, There's a lot of replacement level cards, and then in Icelander and Dramai, it's like very feast or famine. Like you have cards that I feel like are almost actively bad, and then cards that are incredible. Um, the things that come to mind for Icelander are things like Aether Icefane, the correct amount of blues uh, that are able to fuse for ice as well. You know, either it's the Aether Hails or the Frostings potentially. Um, well, with I, with Dramai, it's definitely the Sandipies for me, but also you know enough sweeping blows in the deck, a couple rake the embers to really fuel that engine. If you don't have an engine that can sustain uh, creating a reasonable amount of ash, like those dragons are going to be freaking trash anyway, right? Yeah, so <laughs> those are kind of, those are my takeaways. I, want, I think we talked about sort of uh, the balance of Uprising Draft towards the hero power. I think that, I think that the, the ceiling on most decks is actually pretty is pretty reasonable but i feel like the floor on fly on fire is um a bit stronger and it's very easy to to kind of exist at that floor and have a successful draft um other heroes but yeah like the other as i said they're the the ceiling and the the the, the powerful versions of this deck you can get are powerful enough to absolutely three three oh a draft um the one question i had here which I know we talked about a little bit, but I want to get a quick one-word yes or no answer because this is a this is definitely a an ideological sort of conundrum of, of the flesh and blood player base right now, which is is force fi in quotations is it real? And I'll also go ahead and start, and I'll say yes, it is real, but that that statement in and of itself is too simple to encompass what is actually going on. And I think what's going on is what we talked about, which is where I think the floor of that deck is much easier to hit and it's a safe deck and if you're looking to kind of just get through the draft maybe you haven't had enough experience you're you're uncomfortable playing icelander um and you may be uncomfortable potentially being the third jermai or something like that i think it's a very reasonable deck to pick to to have a a re a an okay draft it, it feels pretty uncommon that you draft a five deck and it's a train wreck I, I agree with that one word answer. I think uh, I fell victim to the illusion of agency, and I'm going to be forcing Phi way more. Glad we sorted that then. Thanks for being on Terra. <laughs> uh, Brendan, I think you, you were going to ask us another question. You said a one word. Have you got, you, I feel like you've got a bunch of questions with one word answers you want from, from either Tarek or myself. I feel like you're about to throw the fishing line in the pond. Oh god, it's so funny that I literally didn't even realize that I just did that until you said that. <laughs> like one one answer, and I gave a freaking. Mom. I was wondering where he was going <laughs> with that. Yeah, hey, what what do you think? Is Force Five real? Um, maybe, maybe. Hard to say. I'll say probably. Um, I'll give you one word answer. Probably. I think yeah. you convinced me after just talking to you guys today. I'm like, this is a hole in my. Draft. I, I need to start forcing five more. Yeah, I think that I think I think uh, definitely I think it's a little bit of a trap to be 
to be uh, really apprehensive of drafting the five deck because we always know that, like, it's going to be super uncommon this one five at the table. Just mm-hmm. period. Pretty much every time there's going to be multiple people drafting it, and it is, I think, the most likely to be the most overdrafted deck. That being said, if you have a natural apprehension to Fi and you have like a normal split on your draft pod, Fi's might be the better deck to be in. Um, and you take significantly more risk sometimes drafting Jermaine Icelander for being oversaturated in those heroes. I want to talk about the gameplay in Uprising Draft, and specifically the die roll. How important do you all feel the die roll is? Um, we'll start with you, Tarek. Um... It's become less important over time. Uh, you know, uh, you can learn certain strategies. I mean, obviously in the fine mirror, it's still going to be the most important thing. But as Icelander, I think it's almost irrelevant. I know there was like a debate even going into Pro Tour and even Nationals. Like, are you always supposed to take the draw? Are you always supposed to take the play? And I'm a big believer of still taking the play or going first, excuse me, as Icelander always, almost always. Like, I think the mirror is the one exception uh, for me. And uh, I know a lot of North Americans and other people were saying, no, you should be going second as Icelander uh, for da-da-da-da-da reasons. Uh, and it was interesting, too, because I even saw that among some of the Europeans, right? Uh, some of the European Icelanders were going second. I know when I played Ehrlich um, in in my Battle Harden, I think he chose the going first as well. Uh, so he, him and I were kind of on the same page uh, in that regard. Um, this is Dromai versus Icelander. So I think it's become less important than people initially thought. I think it's still very important, probably the most important if you're Fi. But if you're Dromai and Icelander, I think you're okay with going either first or second. What do you think, uh, I agree that it's less important than people probably thought it was at the start of the format for a few reasons. One is <clears throat> it's actually just not as important as think people think it is, but also people place a massive weight on this kind of thing, and uh, especially early on in the formats when... I guess people haven't discovered efficiency of actually playing heroes and things like that as well. Icelander in particular, I think the way people played Icelander at the start of the format, if you look now and people played Icelander like that now, they can have very little success in the format, I think. Um, I personally, like in terms of the, the dice roll itself, um, you know, and like going first or second, like I'm just a, I'm a go seconder in this format majority of the mm-hmm. time, including Icelander. I really like going second with Icelander in, in most matches, but I, I do agree that like, I think the margin on it is like actually pretty small, I think on first versus second and can really depend on the makeup of the deck and also just what you draw in your first four cards. So yeah. Yeah. Five mirror so, though. Five mirror. I agree. Most yeah. Quite nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Five mirror. Five mirror is just, uh, it's, it's, it can be, it can be pretty painful there. Um, so it's kind of my last question before we move into actionable tips for people heading into nationals this upcoming weekend. This is releasing on a, on a Thursday and that's a question I think is going to be pretty straightforward, but it's uh, should flesh and blood ever do 14 card packs again. Hayden. No, definitely not. Yeah, I don't think so either. Um, do you think that Uprising Draft would be better with a fourth pack? Sort of a fun exercise, but what do you think? That's interesting, because I've thought about that myself, and I don't know if the power level would be too high, which is why I kind of worded it the way I did before, where I think every class had like one extra card and then maybe a couple of extra generics, it would be a little bit better. I think maybe an entire pack worth of cards per player would just be... like We'd all be playing sealed, I think, at that point, almost. I think 15 cards would go majority of the way to solving the issue I have with the Uprising format and potentially 
I, I wonder if just one rare in the pack would also fix help fix the issue along with that. Uh, just because I think the power level of rares in general are pretty bad, but it might dock Rabai a little bit. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. So like let's go ahead and let's head in. Yeah. Uh, can, I, can I just say, because it brings an interesting kind of segue into something that I wish they kind of will explore a little bit more. They started to do it in Uprising, which I thought was really interesting. For example, like Fi and Dromai having cards that are only specifically redline. And I think it would be really cool if they take this concept and explore it a little bit more going forward. Because I think even, you know, I think 14 cards is too little because of the percentage of, of cards that we actually have to play in our deck. But wouldn't it be cool if we had, you know, a, a design set where every card was at least playable or better? Like we didn't have like, like, uh, you know, yellow brain. I can't first. remember the Yellow read the ripples. Yellow brain freeze. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. I drew a blank. <laughs> so wouldn't it be cool if we just didn't have cards like that in the draft set that really didn't serve a function besides being a, a crack bobble that blocks? And, you know, I, I think that was a really cool concept that they kind of introduced with the Draconic Hero. And I think they should take that a step further to introduce more unique cards per set that could let people have a little bit more room for expression rather than three different colors of brain freezes that really only one line of those is, is a viable pick. Could you see that that potentially evolving into uh, like a draft boosters kind of thing, like a, a version of the game that's more suited for draft, or you see this in sort of the normal the normal set? Yeah, like I, I could see it as a normal set. Uh, I was thinking about a what a flesh and blood cube would look like, and right, like if I was putting an Icelander in there, I would not be putting yellow brain freeze in my cube. But it's going to take a couple more supplemental sets to get enough card variety to build something like that. But yeah, I, I don't see a reason why they couldn't make it a draftable booster set and do something like that. Mm hmm. Okay, so before we head into kind of the big tips for players potentially playing this weekend, there's one thing that you said that I want to draw attention to because I actually think it's really important. And it's something I didn't think about. And that's the uh, the idea that it, the rares, if the rares are picked early in the pack, that it's more likely that Jermai is being drafted. Um, there's nothing more to it than literally what you said, but I just want to pull attention to it because I absolutely didn't, I never thought of that. And I think that it's pretty ingenious because I think you're absolutely correct. I think that in Fi and in Icelander, you find a lot more commons that are big hitters, right? Where you have all these dragons at rare. Um, so yeah, just want to draw attention to that because I think it's a pretty sick learning. Um, anyway, what do you think it, for, for anybody that's going to be playing U.S. Nationals or any of the other ones that are taking, uh, taking part here on the weekend, what do you think are the most important things to keep in mind uh, when drafting Uprising at a professional event? Obviously, this is a bit of a summation of what we've been talking about, but if you could really distill it down into like <clears throat> you know, maybe a couple sentences, what is your, your sort of level up? Uh, don't be afraid to stick with your reads. If you have a good pulse on what your table's doing, commit to it you know in my second national draft i kind of knew that Icelander was open fear kind of prevented me from making that switch and i think that was my biggest mistake so if you have a, a, an idea or a concept of what's going on just stick with your gut how many how many picks in are you in a in a draft where you feel comfortable pivoting to another hero is there a certain pick in pack one where you're like, okay, it looks like I'm in, you know, maybe Dromai, but it looks like Iceland is very open here. How late will you pivot? Uh, so actually my sixth pick is an easier pivot for me than my fifth pick. 
because my sixth pick will give me information for the person three to my left. And I already know what I'm sending to the two people on my left. So by the sixth pick, I usually have a really good understanding of what the rest of the table is doing. Um, and had that Spellfire Cloak come sixth pick instead of fifth for me, I would have slammed it, been Icelander, wouldn't have thought twice. Because it was the fifth pick, it made me nervous, you know, what the heck is this last person doing? Am I going to be one of three Icelander? And I unfortunately passed on it. So for me, the sixth pick is the latest because at that point, you should have a really good idea of what you've been seeing and what's been in the packs to what the rest of the table is. What does your initial, like your your first few picks, what do they generally look like? This is kind of uh, very basic, but I know that in previous formats, especially like something like Welcome to Wraith, people have tended to stay quote unquote open by picking generics. Do you find yourself in Uprising picking the generics that are available, even the good ones like Fiendal's Fighting Spirit, but mm-hmm. do you find yourself early picking things like Oasis or Spite over a powerful Ember Moss Enipi, even if it's pick two or pick three? And you're just, or do you feel out the draft by picking the most powerful cards in the pack? Uh, yeah, I have a pretty basic pick order of power cards or sorry, poppers first. So I, I almost take a popper over everything because I think if you have like three or four poppers in your deck, you just have a really good draw my matchup no matter what. And it's really great to eliminate one third of your potential, you know, matches, uh, just out of like two, three cards. So for me, it's poppers are highest tier followed by uh, power cards, whatever they may be. And I try and just pick the most powerful cards for the first couple packs, and then I'll go from there. Hayden, what about you? Because I know personally I've been sort of underdrafting poppers compared to how I used to in the beginning. How do you feel about, or what is your general sort of strategy in your first few picks? And I mean, even going to that topic there, which is like how highly do you value poppers in the set? Um, I take pretty similar to Tarix. I might be slightly down on the card like Brothers in Arms, I think Finder's Fighting Spirit is crazy good. Like the yellow and red mm-hmm. I, I want in, in my deck because I just think that the value on that card is always high. Uh, you can always translate that value. But um, And then and Brothers in Arms, I think it's a solid card. One thing I do I do just want to add, because I, I agree with Tarek mostly, uh, is that the one thing that taking a popper early does when you talked about, I agree, like pick five, pick six is where I find is like the pivot point. Often after, like after pick six, unless you're pivoting too far or you know you're going to be guaranteed one of two possibly even the only hero uh, only drafter on a hero uh you can actually miss on playables even icelander as an example so if you take the uh the cloak say pick six like you said right so you're now only you're now limiting yourself to because that's not a card for your deck by the way right so you're now limiting yep. yourself to <laughs> maximum 36 cards uh that they're actually playable in your deck you can get packs where it's just like, oh, there's literally, okay, I got the, you know, the 30% chance of a two wizard card pack here that's going to be my my wheel for the last three picks or something. Plus, you know, there's actually no ice cards in this and you can end up with, or there's a bunch of yellow cards and you're one of two. You know, there's actually ways that you can end up with a, still like having four or five cards in your wizard deck that you're not happy with at that point. So um, the, the, the what the popper does is, I guess, especially if it's a final fighting spirit, I think allow you to actually just be almost, it's pick six, but it's almost like pick five because I do have a card that's going to make my deck anyway. Um, same, you know, at blaze headlong, I pivot from Dramai to fire, et cetera. You know, there's still a viable pick in there. I think is important. Awesome. Well, because we're a bit short on time, I'm going to go ahead and head in some of the questions we got off Twitter. Um, these directed at you, of course, Tarek. Um, the first one's going to be what, What's your take on Stalagmite and why didn't you include it in your list? We actually recently had uh, Michael Hinton on Arsenal Pass to do a deck tech and he talked extensively about Stalagmite. So what's your sort of opinion on that card? 
Yeah, if if Michael Hamilton's the stalagmite truther, then I am the stalagmite hater. So, like, even I think what was it Starvo, the Starvo format in indie that yeah. he really liked it. Oh yeah, and like I was on the fence of like maybe cutting it too because I think there was like, what do you play in the mirror match? You know, I think that was that whole discussion. And I think my proudest moment was getting uh, Mister Rogers off it in the mirror. So I think if I can convince him, you know, I, I have some good reasons, but. Um, you know the long and short of it. It, it so it, it's really good against Viscerai. Don't get me wrong, but that's kind of where it ends, in my opinion. Um, Viscerai specifically, because when you pitch a card uh, to Crown of Seeds, you're always going to be able to use your redundant resources for Arcane Barrier versus Viscerai because of Rune Chance and Rosetta Thorn, etc. Now. I believe that Crown of Seeds is the best card in Oldham. I believe it is like the reason to play Oldham, and it's probably the best card in the game. So I don't like that Stalagmite disincentivizes me from not Crown of Seeding, because in almost every matchup, I'm looking for specific cards for specific scenarios, right? Like in Briar, I always want to know what my hypothermias are, or my imposing visages, or my Channel Lake Frigids. And if I don't have one, I want to be cycling as fast as possible through my deck so I can line them up with their Channel Mount Heroics. Um, and, and I have like little things like that for every kind of game plan where I want to draw that extra card per turn. So I think it mostly, for me, comes down to a function of how highly I value Crown of Seas as a card and what my specific game plans are per matchup that led me to, okay, I want uh, to be crowning almost every turn if possible. I'm going to be playing Rampart's Head, even if you know, it ends up being a two block pitch. Mm. Makes sense. Ooh, great reason. Um, so yeah, it actually makes a lot of sense because uh, like, if you're going to be getting value off of your, your rampart every single time, because you plan on crowning every turn, uh, like there's pretty quantitative argument to sort of figure out which one defends more damage, than the other, right? at least on the Delta. It looks like that was sort of the approach that you took there. Is your was your preparation is your preparation um, your card and your deck choices any different for a more open field like a calling versus something like the Pro Tour or Nationals? Actually, surprisingly, no. Like the only exception would be is if I played like a sixteen person event <clears throat> and I knew like ten of the people really well, then I might like pick a really off the wall deck just because I could really metagame. But you have to expect everything, right? Just because Canadian Nationals was smaller than like a calling or the US Nationals, uh, my preparation was largely the same. And thanks to Flesh and Blood Online, it's like I could just play, you know, I'm in my my comfort zone where I can just play like a hundred matches and just have a really good idea of where I should be against an open field. I don't I don't prepare any differently, no. How has uh, Flesh and Blood Online and or as it's known now, Talishar uh affected your your testing process and sort of i guess just how you think about and operate in flesh and blood in general yeah i don't have to bug uh brandon patrick anymore at like 5 a.m be like hey man you want to play some games but uh <laughs> uh it's it just gets me back into that you know grinder mindset where we've kind of like jumped ahead 10 years in evolution in like a couple months where um there was a lot more theory before and you never really got the reps to really fully flush out your theory. And so there's a lot more kind of shooting in the dark. And now it's like, let's play 50 to hundred games and we can empirically see whether my idea was right or wrong. There's no kind of guessing anymore. 
Yeah. Um, I know for us as well, we had found ourselves in uh, at least a, more than one tournament where we had spent a lot of time uh, building our deck, crafting the theory for our deck, developing our game plans. And we found that sometimes we were a bit un unexperienced playing the deck, especially because there was the whole gauntlet deck thing, right? Like someone has to play the deck that's, you know, if they're effectively not learning anything for that. Um, especially if it's an uninteractive like matchup like Kano was against everything, right? Like you basically had someone sitting there kind of in timeout while they got to go through the motions of playing the opposing deck. Um, nowadays you can queue up on Talishar and have, you know, 10 people in a row disconnect because you're playing Kano or something, but then you'll eventually get a match. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting for how it's going to affect uh, testing and practicing moving forward. And I think that, you know, anybody that's going into a tournament and looking to be serious doesn't really have an excuse to not have reps on the deck, whether, you know, the quality of those reps is something that you need to consider. But nevertheless, um, I think that it's going to drastically affect general skill level of every single player in Flesh and Blood. And like you said, it feels like we've moved from this sort of prehistoric age of the game to a more modern, a more modern mod. And whether that's good or bad, we will see. But I, I think you should be very prepared for people to be a lot better when you show up at Worlds. Um, last thing, Terry, you've won, uh, you've won US Nationals, you've won Canadian Nationals. What is next in for you? Like, what is the next Nationals? Uh, we saw, you know, Brazil, I think it was called. Are you looking to uh, to conquer move on to south america and conquer that continent as well yeah as a snow mexican i figure i'll move south and conquer uh, actual mexico next year so i'm gonna get my passport ready and i'll see everybody down there <laughs> yeah i mean obviously an incredible achievement i just want to again that is just uh something that it's it's a narrative i didn't know would come to fruition in game and you know, going from a the major event that u.s national was last year being the champion there um to back to backing it at canadian nationals to solidify your sort of legacy i think is is really awesome and, and i'm really it's really cool to have seen you as well in your very early days at the at the dallas calling then at cincinnati and to see where you've come now and i think that you've achieved uh you know a lot that you set out you set out to do and it's it's been a it's been a pretty good ride and there's only there's only more to come with you know worlds coming up here in, in november Thank you. And yeah, I, I also want to give a shout out to Yuki because I know our, our match specifically, we played in the semifinals and it was quite a, a heartbreaker. It was going to be a heartbreaker for one of us because I think her storyline was really cool too. You know, you know, I think if she beats me, she very likely becomes the first back-to-back -back national champion. And uh, it was, you know, not easy for me to play that game out and she made it super difficult, you know, for me. And she's just an amazing player, an amazing person, somebody I got to talk to a little bit more over the weekend. Um, so I just want to give a shout out to her because she's just awesome. And I really hope she does well at Worlds and continues her arc as well. Um, and I feel bad for, you know, for winning in, in some ways, even though, you know, obviously I'm, I'm very grateful and happy to be a Canadian champion. I just wanted to say that as well. I was going to say a big congrats to Tarek as well, but I'll, I'll let you close it out, Brendan. Well, I was just going to say, speaking of shout out, speaking of shilling, Tarek, do you have any content you want to shout out your respective channels? Where can people find you? What are you doing? What's your team name called? Let's hear it all. Yes. Yeah, so I just like to thank Team Dragon Shield for everything, all the support they've given us, uh, the sleeves, you know, the accommodations, et cetera. And they're just awesome people to work with. Uh, my teammates, Nick and Matt, uh, especially Nick for taking my call at uh, 5 a.m. running on the treadmill. You know, I couldn't have won uh, nationals without him. Uh, Matt, for all the help he puts in with me, uh, we have discussions at like 2 a.m. sometimes, uh, just on like random theory topics. So 
just an awesome person to bounce ideas off of uh you guys for being who you are and being you know a big draw into the game and you know getting people excited to get up every day and go to their armories i think that's a, a really big thing um so just thank you to everybody for all the support uh love you all and if you want to follow me more you can find me on twitter tark patel 10 i write for tra- uh, channel fireball um I'm, i have an article this week uh, i'm going to be covering Fi, and then hopefully icelander uh, will be up next week so you can follow me there if you want to learn more awesome well thank you all so much for joining us that is episode 76 of arsenal pass we do have the two recent deck techs that have gone up on the channel so if you're looking to play nationals this weekend or just in preparations for worlds and interested in either briar um this is going to be our briar deck from the pt slightly adjusted for the new meta as well as old him with michael hamilton himself um you can see the the arguments forced to lag mine in that video <laughs> <laughs> go go and check it out uh, thanks again Tarek. congratulations on your win and excited to see uh, the sort of the future of your career Thanks you. Thank you for having me, guys.